We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Daniel, has particle physics done anything useful lately? Mm, You mean other than revealing the fundamental nature of reality? Have you done that? (laughs) I mean, it's a project. (laughs) I mean, that's all nice and cool, but uh, it doesn't really help me, you know, with the dishes or you know, with my diet. I guess we did also invent the World Wide Web. That's pretty helpful. You mean web surfing? (laughs) I wouldn't (laughs) say that's not the most helpful thing in my life. But that was a long time ago. Anyways, what have you done for us recently? Yeah, maybe we should be coming up with like a fundamental physics diet plan. Mm, Is it just coffee and donuts all the time? (laughs) Existential angst about the nature of the universe. I guess the problem with physics is that it says that the faster you go, the more massive you get, right? That's kind of a anti-diet. I guess I was thinking, you know, black holes, something, 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 liposuction, black holes. I don't know. I didn't really have it worked out. Mm, Quantum cosmetic surgery. Whoa. (laughs) Orange County is definitely the place for that. And you can get a tan to the color beige. I'm a cartoonist and the creator of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and a professor at UC Irvine. And I was shocked when a pediatrician offered my one-year-old plastic surgery. Wait, what? They do that on one-year-olds? In Orange County, you're never too young for plastic surgery. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
I guess, do they offer like a subscription service? <laughs> like a membership <laughs> or something? It's a long-term relationship. No, our son had like a vein on his eyelid and the doctor was like, do you want me to remove that? And we were like, no, please <laughs> do not. <laughs> Wait, the eyelid or, or the vein? <laughs> You're like, I think my son needs it's his eyelid. <laughs> exactly. We were like, I'm pretty sure that's going to be fine. And newsflash, he's fine. Were you like, I'm a real doctor. I don't think he needs any surgery. <laughs> I'm not a real doctor, but I'm pretty sure he didn't need any surgery. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not a real doctor. I just play one in the lab. But anyways, welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we try to show you the nature of the universe in all of its unvarnished glory. We don't want to edit out the ugly bits and smooth over the bumps and wrinkles. We want to show you the universe the way it actually is, even when it conflicts with our intuition and runs aground for our preconceived ideas for how things move and flow and dance in the universe. That's right. That's because we love the universe just the way it is. We love the OG universe, the original organic version of the universe. <laughs> Untreated, unvarnished, and pretty mysterious. <laughs> That's right. We prefer the granola crunchy Berkeley version with all of its hair in all the original places, even on all of its black holes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not go too far there. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan of socks and sandals, but, you know, there's a time and a place. I'm all for accepting people and universes just the way they are. But it is a wonderful and beautiful universe that doesn't need any cosmic surgery because when we look at it, we're just uh, stricken with awe and amazement at how wonderfully complex and intriguing it all is. And one of my favorite things about the universe is that it's surprising. It's not like we look out into the universe and we're like, oh, yeah, that's pretty much how I expected or, oh, yeah, there's nothing new out there to discover. Every time we dig deep into something, every time we scratch under the surface, we find out, wow, the universe is quite different from the way that we imagined it. Which is wonderful because it's an opportunity to learn, to discover the truth instead of just coasting on our intuition. Yeah, the universe is very different out there in space beyond our galaxy, beyond our cluster of galaxies. And it's also very different at the molecular and atomic and particle scales, things are actually very different than our everyday experience. And we're tempted when we discover these new weird wrinkles in the universe to explain them in terms of things that we know, things we understand. It's a very natural way to try to understand the universe, to describe it in terms of the language that you already have. Sometimes, though, that gets awkward. It's hard to understand how quantum particles dance around if you're thinking about them as little dots of stuff. And that's because they're not really little dots of stuff. And it's hard to think about velocity and energy and mass as things approach the speed of light because the definitions of those things have to change and the way things move and bounce against each other and transfer energy and momentum is really very different at high speeds than it is down here in the slow motion life on earth yeah things are very weird and awkward in general when you talk to physicists i feel not just when you learn <laughs> learn what they have to say all right this is not a therapy podcast we're talking about the nature of the universe here that's right that's right and the universe is not awkward or weird it's just the way it is and i guess it's us that are weird and awkward right because we have this picture of how the world works but that may not be how the universe actually works yeah and in physics our project is to build a mathematical description of how things work in the universe something that lets us make predictions and gives us a peek at the machinery behind the curtains that's deciding like what happens when two balls bounce against each other but that doesn't always translate in an easy or simple way to english the language that most humans speak 
So when physicists are trying to explain how things work when the universe gets weird, they use the terms that we're familiar with, mass and energy, momentum, etc., and try to translate the weirdness in those terms. And so you hear a lot of explanations for what happens when things get fast. Some of those explanations are bang on and some of them are a little bit misleading. Yeah, because I guess one of the biggest mind-bending moments and oddest and strangest moments in the history of science was when we found out that the universe is kind of different once you start moving really fast. Exactly. We've had Newtonian and Galilean mechanics for centuries, things that did a very good job of explaining what happens when two balls bounce against each other and how momentum is transferred and how things look when you're going fast. If you're driving a car at 30 miles an hour and you throw a ball at 30 miles an hour, then, you know, that ball should be moving at 60 miles an hour relative to the ground. All that that stuff made sense for a long time until we started looking at things that were moving really, really fast. We discovered there's a speed limit to the universe and that really changed everything we thought about the nature of space and time and velocity and gives rise to all sorts of weird stuff that's very tricky to unpack. Yeah, it gets super tricky. Well, first of all, the idea that we have a speed limit in the universe is kind of wild. Like, you know, you sort of grew up thinking that the sky's the limit. The more that you push something, the faster you go. But at some point, the universe says, ah, I think that's fast enough. It doesn't let you go faster than a certain speed. Yeah, it's a really bizarre feature of our universe, one that we've discovered experimentally. Right, The Michelson-Morley experiment proved that light travels the same speed in every direction and effectively demonstrating that there is no absolute reference frame and that there is a maximum speed of information and transmission in the universe, which leads to all sorts of weird consequences, changes what we think about time and the nature of simultaneity. Things that happen at the same time for one person might happen in a different order for somebody else. The whole nature of reality becomes different when there is a maximum speed limit to the universe. Yeah, and I think it kind of makes people wonder what would happen if you try to go faster than the speed of light. Does the universe police come and flag you down and stop you or do you hit a wall or, or what? Are you considering trying to break some laws of the universe? Are you asking for physics legal <laughs> advice? Well, I'm trying to toe the line, you know, I'm trying to max out my life here. <laughs> I need to know how far I can go. <laughs> I just don't want to be held responsible if you get thrown in physics jail. I'm going to need a physics lawyer. <laughs> I wonder if people who are lawyers are always on the lookout for like, is this person asking me legal advice? Am I going to get them in trouble if I say the wrong thing? I don't usually have to worry about that because most people aren't capable of trying to break the laws of the universe. I think most lawyers don't really care that much. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there is no physics police that are just going to pull you over. It's just that acceleration and momentum start working differently at high speeds. So you discover that you can pour energy into a particle, it just doesn't go much faster. So you could discover that as things approach the speed of light, you can keep pouring energy into something, a rock, a particle, a spaceship, whatever. It just doesn't go much faster. The same amount of energy doesn't get you increases in velocity at the same rate. It's no longer linear. It becomes asymptotic. So today on the podcast, we'll be tackling the question. Do things get more massive the faster they move? This is kind of like the, the anti-diet, or at least it, I feel like it justifies maybe sitting down on your couch all the time. Because <laughs> if I get up from my couch and I move, then I'm just going to gain more mass, right? Technically, that's true. Well, what we're going to learn on the podcast today is that it's a little bit more complicated than that. This is the kind of popular science thing you hear all the time and 
people write in and ask me about. And I think it was widely taught in textbooks until about 30, 40 years ago. The feeling that everything gets weird as you approach the speed of light and that even your mass might change. Things might get like infinitely heavy as you approach the speed of light. It's an attractive concept for people, I think, because it gives you a sense of the strange. But as we'll talk about today on the podcast, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it's actually something of an outdated notion. Wait, wait, are you saying it's a massive lie? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of different ways you can try to translate the crisp mathematics of relativity into English and into popular culture. This was one attempt early on that I don't think really works very well. Mm, I see. It was just heavily exaggerated. Well, as usual, we were wondering how many people had wondered about this question, had asked this about themselves, about the universe, about what happens when you try to go faster and faster. And so Daniel went out there into the Internet to ask people, do you think things get more massive as you approach the speed of light? I am so grateful to everybody who answers these questions. They give me a sense for what people already know, and they give listeners a sense for what everybody else is thinking. If you would like to participate, please don't be shy. You're really very welcome to join the club. Just write to me to questions at danielandjorge.com. So think about it for a second. Do you think you should stay in your couch if you don't want to gain any mass? Here's what people had to say. This question just blows my mind. I'm just stumped. Do they get more massive? I guess maybe. I don't know how, but maybe something related to quantum mechanics. I don't know. As you approach the speed of light, I thought Einstein's equations told us that you would gain mass, but to an outside observer, I don't think you would actually look bigger. I mean, at the speed of light, time was slower. Maybe space gets contracted. So I'm kind of brainstorming here. Maybe. If that is true, then you will have a higher density. And in that sense, it will be more massive. I'm not sure. I think they do get more massive, but because it's it gets harder to move things at that speed and not because they get more stuffy. My understanding is mass and energy are interchangeable. So the more energy you have to pump into something to accelerate it closer and closer to the speed of light is really no different than making it more massive to begin with. So I think, yes, it gets more massive as you approach the speed of light, just because mass and energy are essentially the same thing. I think I remember hearing that they do get more massive as they approach the speed of light. Like it takes more energy to increase the speed and like, you know, they, they just can't really get to the speed of light um, unless it's like, you know, massless. I guess so based on the question, I'm not sure exactly why, but if it has something to do with like the kinetic energy of something affecting its mass, then I would guess so. I think the answer is yes. First, I was taught it that way. I've since heard that's an old school way of thinking about it. But definitely, if we consider energy as being mass, you know, the way it works relativistically, you can concentrate energy as well as matter, and that is all mass energy, then as you add velocity, you're adding energy and you become more massive. All right. A lot of great answers here. I feel like uh, some people were blown away and some people were like, oh, I've heard of this. The answer is yes or no. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. There's a lot of different ideas here about what energy is and what mass is. Very few people mentioned momentum even. But there's definitely this understanding that things change as you approach the speed of light and that it's harder to go faster. Yeah, somebody, one of the listeners said that it's kind of strange that your mass would change, right? And that goes to the heart of like what we mean by mass. 
I think a lot of people think of mass as like the amount of stuff they have. And so it's really weird for them to imagine them getting like more stuff as they approach the speed of light. And that's one reason why I really don't like this concept of relativistic mass. It gives people the impression that something physical is happening, which isn't. Mm, interesting. All right. Well, let's dig into it. And I guess let's start with the basics, as you said. Uh, let's start with the concept of mass. Now, I know mass is kind of a big mystery. We talked about it in our book. Like, what is mass? Anyways, we have a whole chapter about how we don't <laughs> kind of know what mass is. But Daniel, maybe step us through it. What do we know about what mass is? I think in the context of relativity and motion, the most important thing to think about is inertia. Like the fact that it's not easy to change your velocity. You're flying through the universe at some speed. In order to change that speed, you need a push, right? That's really what F equals MA is trying to say. That to accelerate, you need to have a force applied to you. And that M in that equation in F equals MA is the mass. It relates how much acceleration you get for how much force. We've all heard, for example, that the Earth's gravity on you is the same as your gravity on the Earth, right? But we feel a much stronger force than the Earth does because the Earth has a huge mass. So we feel a much stronger acceleration than the Earth does because the Earth has a huge mass. And so it's acceleration is tiny, even though the force is the same. So a really important concept in mass is inertia. That's really what mass is about when we're talking about motion. And that's connected to this idea of momentum, right? Another way to think about F equals MA is that F is actually a change in momentum. When you're flying through the universe at a certain velocity, you have a certain momentum. In order to change your momentum, you need to have a force applied. So mass is this concept that tells us basically how hard it is to change your momentum. Mm, I feel like you're making us go down a rabbit hole a little bit because then it makes me wonder, like, what is momentum anyways? Yeah, and momentum is something we know is important in the universe. It's a quantity that's conserved. Like we look at in the universe, we watch stuff, we see things happen and we look for patterns. And a very important pattern are conservation laws, things that don't change. So two balls bounce against each other, for example. You calculate all the momentum beforehand and all the momentum afterwards and you notice it's the same. It is conserved. We actually know that there's a deep reason for why momentum is conserved is because space is the same everywhere. We did a whole fun podcast on Noether's theorem, which tells you that because space is the same everywhere, momentum has to be conserved. This is deep link there. So momentum is an important physical quantity in the universe. It's something that's really powerful and really gives us insight into what's happening. Momentum is flowing through a system, right? But it's conserved in the universe. The universe, at least, thinks momentum is important. So maybe we should also. Well, how is it different from like energy? And is momentum the same as energy? Is the momentum of a particle or a baseball the same as its kinetic energy? How do the two connect? Yeah, great question. Uh, first of all, momentum has directionality. You can have momentum in one direction or momentum in another direction. It's a vector. It points. And for example, the Earth has a constant magnitude of momentum, but the direction of its momentum is changing as it goes around the sun. It's like an arrow that tells you which way the Earth is headed, and that's constantly changing. So the length of that vector isn't changing, but the direction of it is. And that's why it takes acceleration to move around the sun because you're changing the direction of that momentum vector. So momentum is a direction, right? Energy doesn't have a direction. It's just a number, right? And also, an energy includes something else. The energy of an object has two components. There's the internal energy, what we call its inertial mass, and the energy of its motion, its kinetic energy. So there's two separate components there. So things could have energy when they're not moving, like an electron just sitting there has some mass, then that corresponds to some energy. And there's also energy of motion. Things can have only energy of motion, like a photon is just motion energy, has no mass. 
or they can have both like an electron flying through the universe has mass and that's energy and also has kinetic energy. So energy has two components. There's the mass and there's a contribution from the momentum, which we also call kinetic energy. And so the universe conserves both things, right? Like it somehow conserves momentum and it also conserves energy, but uh, not necessarily in the same way, I think, right? So there's a little asterisk there. In flat space, yes, energy is conserved. In the global universe, as space expands, actually energy increases. So energy is not strictly conserved in the universe. There's a whole podcast episode we did about that if you want to dig into it. But let's just assume we're like living in flat space and we're bouncing balls and particles off each other. We wouldn't notice the expansion of the universe. So let's just say for the sake of this discussion that yes, energy is conserved. And so you're right. Momentum is conserved and energy is conserved. And those are actually related. Those are four separate conservation laws because energy is one number and momentum is three numbers because we have three dimensions of space and momentum is conserved separately in each of those dimensions. So we have four conservation laws, three from momentum and one from energy. And in particle physics, at least we group energy and momentum together into something we call four momentum, like the four dimensions of space time. And we say there's conservation of four momentum, which combines momentum and energy into one conservation law. So and then mass is related to both things like mass makes your momentum go higher and it makes your energy go higher. Yeah, that's right. So mass is like your internal stored energy. Take a proton, for example. It has a bunch of mass. Where does that mass come from? It comes from the internal energy of the proton. Like there's the mass of the quarks. They get their mass from the Higgs boson. Then there's the mass of the binding of those quarks together. And that's where most of the mass of the proton comes from. So that proton has mass. And you're right, that's part of its energy. And the proton could also have momentum. That's another part of its energy. So we think of the mass as the thing that like makes it hard to push on something or easy to push on something something if it has low mass and then there's also energy stored in its motion. Okay, so then generally speaking mass is just what makes things harder to move, right? Basically that's exactly right. That's the concept of inertial mass, basically related to the object's inertia, which tells you how hard is it to change its momentum. Right. And then there's the concept of gravitational mass, which is a different concept, but it's the same number. Yeah. And there's a bunch of really fascinating wrinkles here. Like in Newton's world, he had F equals MA, which tells you about how hard it is to push something. And he also had this number M in his gravitational law, GMM over R squared, which tells you the force between two objects. And in Newtonian physics, these two things are different numbers. They're written in the same way, the same letter, M in F equals MA and M in GMM over R squared. But in principle, they could have been totally different, right? It was a bit of a mystery in Newtonian physics why these two numbers always seem to have the same value. Einstein unified these things in general relativity and told us that actually inertial and gravitational masses have to be the same because according to Einstein, there is no acceleration due to gravity. There is no force due to gravity. It's just inertial motion through curved space time that when you are having inertial motion, there's no forces on you through space time. That's what gravity looks like. So motion due to gravity is actually just inertial motion. You're just really in free fall. Right. So like, for example, the Earth orbit around the sun it's not like like there's a force pulling the earth towards the sun or there's no centripetal force there it's just like the space around the sun 
for the Earth is sort of curved and it it's shaped like a circle, basically, right? Yeah, that's right. If space were flat, everything would just move in what looks to us like straight lines. But when space is curved, things move differently. And it looks like there's a force there bending their paths, but really it's just motion through curved space. And because we can't see that curvature, you can't like look through space and see the curvature of space the way you can like see the curvature of a road. It seems like a bit of a mystery why things are moving in curves. And of course, is that space is curved. So there's an apparent force there. Or more accurately, you mean like space time, right? Like maybe space is not curved, but space time is. It's definitely more coherent to think about relativity in terms of space time because the way like energy and momentum are linked, space and time are definitely linked. You can talk about the curvature of space as well and the curvature of time separately. They make more sense when you think about them together. But yes, space itself can also be curved, but space time as well. All right. So then that's mass. It's, it's how, how hard it is to push on something. And it's also sort of like the effect something has on space time around it. Yeah. And this is very intuitive. If you're like playing billiards or you're shooting a basketball or you're rolling rocks down hills and it aligns with our sense that like things that have more stuff to them are harder to push. And that all makes sense at low speeds. Things change a little bit as you get very high velocity. And then you have a question for like, what do you change? Do you change momentum? Do you change mass? Do you change energy? What's the most sensible way to think about these things? Yeah, because as we mentioned, there's the idea out there that the faster you go and as you approach the speed of light, your mass starts to get bigger and bigger, which is a problem for us who are trying to stay slim. And so let's dig into that scenario and the problems with that scenario and what it all means about the laws of the universe. But first, let's take a quick break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Physicists are famously sticklers for detail. And when it comes to the fine print contracts and hidden fees from wireless providers, I've learned that there's always a catch somewhere. So when I heard that the Mint Mobile wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, where's the catch? But now I'm convinced... There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online, so they cut out the cost of retail stores and they pass all those savings directly to you. So you can say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, draw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. All of Mint Mobile's plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month go to mintmobile.com slash universe that's mintmobile.com slash universe cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash universe additional taxes fees and restrictions apply see mintmobile for details apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card 
You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. All right, we are talking about a massive topic here, and it's going by really fast, and it's about how really massive things go really fast. (laughs) (laughs) How things get massive as they go really fast. Yeah, things definitely do change as you approach the speed of light, and a lot of your intuition goes out the window. You can just lean into the mathematics and say, well, there are new formulas, and I can just use them and calculate stuff. But we also want to have like an understanding of how the universe works. We want to like develop a new intuition. So it's important that we make sense of what the words mean as things change. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about change, I guess. Now, before, when we just had Newtonian physics, things were kind of simple. Like if you wanted to change the velocity of something, you had to apply a certain force and a certain force would always give you the same amount of velocity change, kind of. Like no matter if you were standing still or if you're going fast, if you applied an F, you always got that change in velocity to acceleration. Yeah, that's right. F used to equal MA in a very simple and straightforward way. Or equivalently, we could say F is the change in momentum. Right, so that's Newtonian physics. But then we sort of learned a little bit more about relativity, which says that that's not quite true. Yeah, because there is a maximum speed to the universe, if you pour energy into something to try to get it going faster, you don't always get the same amount of speed up which means like it's harder to add velocity in the direction something is moving. You have a rocket ship and it's already going at 90% of the speed of light and you fire the engines the same amount you did earlier, you're not going to get the same amount of speed up, even if you're applying the same force. Right, because I guess under Newtonian physics, you could technically go infinitely fast, right? Like if you just kept pushing on an object over a long, long period of time, it would just keep going faster and faster and faster because F equals MA. And so if I apply a constant force to something, the velocity is just going to keep increasing, increasing and increasing. And eventually it would go faster than the speed of light in a Newtonian universe. Yeah, that's exactly right. But we seem to have this speed limit that says you can go faster and faster. And so I guess my question is, what happened then? Did we have to adjust our math or does the math tell you why you can't go faster than the speed of light? We definitely had to adjust our math, right? Because those formulas are wrong. As you say, they predict you could go infinitely fast. 
So what was wrong about those formulas? Well, it turns out our formula for momentum was wrong. We thought momentum was just like mass times velocity, and then we thought that quantity was conserved in the universe. Turns out we were missing a term. There's another term in that equation, this thing we call the boost factor. We write it as gamma in relativity. It's just a number. But if you're going at slow speeds, that number is basically one, so it doesn't change your equation. But as you approach the speed of light, that number grows to infinity. So what it means is momentum is different from what we thought it was. We talked about how momentum is this important quantity in the universe that's conserved. That's true, but it's not m times v. There's a different expression for momentum, and that's the thing that's actually conserved in the universe, it turns out. M times V times this gamma factor. So momentum changes as you approach the speed of light. And that's why it's harder to increase your velocity as you approach the speed of light because your momentum is changing. It requires a larger force to change your momentum. I guess it's, this is where it gets kind of confusing because you know, first of all, like you're saying that as I go faster, my momentum decreases. But doesn't that depend on how fast I'm going relative to who or what? Like to me, I'm not going fast at all. If I'm going really fast, to me, it just looks like the universe is moving around me. Mm -hmm. So first of all, as you go faster, your momentum still increases. That's always true. It's just not a linear increase. And you're absolutely right that all of these things depend on your frame, right? It depends on who's watching. Somebody who's in a spaceship with you is going to see you at zero velocity. And somebody who's on Earth as you zip by is going to see you moving at very high speeds. So you're absolutely right. There's no sense of talking about like, what is my velocity in an absolute way? It's always measured relative to some observer. So there's an important difference between things that are invariant where everybody agrees on them no matter their velocity and things that are conserved, things that don't change in a frame of reference. So momentum, for example, is conserved. For some observer, you always see momentum conserved, like before collision, after collision, this is the same momentum. But momentum is not invariant. Another observer moving at a different speed will see a different set of momenta, but they will also see momentum conserved. So momentum is conserved, meaning for a given observer, it doesn't ever disappear or appear, but it's not invariant, meaning different people will measure different amounts at different velocities. Mm. Okay, so then I think what you're saying is that momentum is not linear. It gets kind of wonky the faster you go. And the way it gets wonky is that it gets kind of ridiculously big as you get closer to the speed of light, right? You said momentum equals mass times velocity times gamma. And gamma is basically one when we're standing still, but it gets to infinity as we get closer to the speed of light. Exactly. And if you think about force, not just as mass times acceleration, but as the change in momentum, then if your momentum is really, really big, then it becomes hard to change your momentum. You need to apply a really, really big force to change your momentum. And your momentum grows very, very quickly near the speed of light. As you say, it approaches infinity as velocity approaches the speed of light. So I guess when I get more concretely, it would mean like my couch, me sitting in my couch, my momentum would be my mass times my velocity, which in this case, I guess it's zero, but it would just be my mass times my velocity. But if I was moving at 200,000 kilometers per second, then my momentum would be not just my mass times my velocity, but it'd be my mass times my velocity. 
times a really big number, which is this adjustment factor that gets bigger the closer you move to the speed of light. Exactly. This gamma factor is the thing that Newton missed in momentum, basically. And he missed it because for everything he measured and he saw, it was just one. So it didn't change any of his calculations. Any number multiplied by one is just itself. So you have like a hidden factor in your equations that's always one. You can't discover it. You can only discover it when it changes from one. And it only changes from one as you approach the speed of light. So I think kind of the message is that the universe can, is kind of like, okay, if you want to move something from your couch to your kitchen, it's that's fine. You can do that. It's going to cost you this much. But if you want to move it from, you know, your couch to almost as, to the speed of light or super duper fast, it's going to cost you that plus an extra like universe tax or something mm -hmm, exactly. that says that, oh, that's going to cost you a lot, a lot. And somehow the idea is that it that kind of lets the universe prevent you from going faster than the speed of light. Yeah. And this universe tax is basically zero if you're not moving very fast. Even if you're moving at like half the speed of light, this gamma factor, this boost, this universe tax is like 15%. So even at half the speed of light, it's barely noticeable. As you get to like 90% of the speed of light, it's like 2.3. And if you get to like 99% of the speed of light, it's like 7. 99.9% .9 of the speed of light, it's like 22. So it increases very, very quickly as things get fast. Well, I, I didn't know the universe was so progressive. <laughs> exactly. Momentum billionaires, the universe is coming for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so really that's fundamentally what's happening. We like to think about momentum because that's something the universe conserves. That's something that's important to the universe, energy and momentum. And that's really what's driving this experience that it's harder to accelerate as you get towards the speed of light. And remember that momentum is directional, right? And so adding velocity in the direction you're already going takes actually different amounts of momentum than adding velocity like perpendicular to your motion. It gets very complicated. Mm. So I think you're saying that momentum is conserved in the universe, but there's there's sort of a premium on higher momentum, momenti, momentumus, like the, the bigger momentum as somehow costs you more. Exactly. And that raises the question of like, well, what do we do about mass? We used to have this notion that mass told us how hard it is to push something. And in the old sense of momentum is just mass times velocity, then it all made sense. And then you get the equation F equals MA and it's a very natural linear relationship between acceleration and force. That all changes when we change the definition of momentum. You no longer have F equals MA. And so you have to think about like, what do you do with mass? Mm, I, th I think you're saying like, we have this tax that the universe puts on momentum. Now, do you take that tax and fold it into the definition of, of mass or is mass still mass? But then you have this extra tax, which is not mass. Exactly. And so the modern idea, the one that most physicists use is exactly that. I say, let's just leave mass alone. Mass is related to your internal stored energy. Let's define mass to be something everybody agrees on, no matter what their velocity is. And let's just change the definition of momentum. So mass stays as M, whatever it was before. And now momentum is M times V. And we conclude the gamma factor there in momentum. The other idea, the one that leads to this confusion, is this concept of relativistic mass and say, oh, let's redefine mass to be mass times gamma. Let's fold that gamma factor into the mass. And that lets us keep momentum as mass times velocity because we like that equation. And so there's sort of a choice to be made there. Like, do you redefine momentum or do you redefine mass? Well, I see. It kind of depends on whether you define mass as how hard you are to push when you're just sitting on your couch 
or how hard you are to push at any point or no matter how fast you're moving. It's definitely a choice, right? It's a definition and you can make one choice or the other and the equations all work. I think it's more coherent. It makes more sense if you call mass, as you say, how hard it is to push you when you're sitting on your couch. It's tempting to say, well, it makes more sense to use mass as how hard it is to push when you're moving fast as well. But as we can dig into in a moment, that doesn't actually hang together. You can't have just a single number that tells you how hard it is to speed up because that actually depends a little bit on the direction of your speed up. So relativistic mass is a little bit complicated and problematic. It doesn't really do that job. It doesn't let you use F equals MA again by redefining M. Mm, I see. So I think maybe for the people who had heard that the faster you go or the closer you get to the speed of light, the more massive you get. What they probably heard at that time was that you do get harder to push as you get closer to the speed mm -hmm. of light. But that doesn't mean that your mass went up. It's just that there's an adjustment to your momentum mm -hmm. or, how, or there's a premium to how much momentum costs which makes it harder for you to push you, but it doesn't change how hard you are to get off the couch. Yeah, and physics has sort of changed its mind about this. Even Einstein for a while used this concept of relativistic mass and it was taught in textbooks. So people who were told like your mass increases as you approach the speed of light, that's not wrong. It just depends on what you mean by mass. So it really is our choice of what do we mean by this word mass. It used to have a very crisp and clear definition that everybody agreed about at low speeds. At high speeds, it becomes a little bit trickier and you can use the word relativistic mass it's not like it's wrong it's just a choice for how to organize the ideas and now we think it makes more sense to just describe mass as how hard it is to push you when you're sitting on your couch and to leave momentum to absorb all the messiness i guess you're saying like mass can just be how hard it is to push you off your couch but we can introduce maybe a concept called relativistic mass or people did introduce a concept called relativistic mass which is how hard you are to push at all speeds and that changes the faster you go. That does change the faster you go. Though I would say the two choices are not equal. I would say there's some problems with relativistic mass. I mean, problem number one is that it's just a number, whereas momentum is three numbers. It's a direction. And so if you're going to talk about how hard it is to change your momentum, then if you have a high speed in one direction, you basically have a different relativistic mass in each direction because it's harder to push you in the direction you're already going fast than it is to push you perpendicular to that direction. So then you would need like a transverse relativistic mass and a longitudinal relativistic mass. It gets messy very, very quickly. Well, I think what you're saying is that it's not that it gets messy. It's just that the word relativistic mass is a vector. Like you have to define which way you're pointing your relativistic mass, just like you have to define which way you're pointing your momentum. Well, we already have that concept of momentum, right? So we don't really need a vector of relativistic mass. And the formula for relativistic mass, it turns out, is actually just energy divided by the speed of light. So relativistic mass doesn't actually give you anything new that you don't already have for momentum and energy. So sort of unnecessary, whereas invariant mass, your rest mass is actually something independent and interesting. It tells you like, what is the thing? You know, photons and electrons and protons all have different rest masses. And it tells you a little bit about like what the thing is, what it has to it, which I think is more closely connected to like our intuitive idea for what mass is. And it tells you something about like what you're made of. Mm. And I guess for people who maybe missed it or are not super familiar with this idea of directionality. Uh, I think what you're saying is that like if I'm going really fast from here to Andromeda, for example, in one particular direction and I'm going at half the speed of light, then my momentum in the direction from here to Andromeda is really high because I'm going really fast. And so it's really hard to like accelerate me more 
in the direction of Andromeda. But if you maybe if you're going along with me and you try to push me in a direction that's perpendicular to the side of the direction from here to Andromeda, then you're not going to notice me being super massive or having this huge relativistic mass. It's just going to feel to you like I'm sitting on the couch. It's like I'm sitting on the couch in one direction, but I'm going really fast in another direction. Yeah, that's approximately true because your motion towards Andromeda does change your overall velocity and the limit is on the total velocity in any direction, not just in one direction. But for the most part, that's true. Uh, you know, what happens at those very high speeds is like if you push in one direction, you don't get accelerated in the direction you were pushing because the pushing has a different impact based on your momentum, right? And so in some directions, you already have a lot of momentum and other directions, you don't have as much momentum. And so the pushing changes your momentum differently in those different directions. So force and acceleration no longer line up. So F doesn't equal MA at very high velocities. Instead, you have to use F equals change in momentum. That's the real formula. Mm, I feel like you're kind of saying like, just forget about mass. Like you sitting <laughs> on the couch, nobody cares about that. Really what we care about is how hard you are to push in any particular direction. Is that kind of what you're, you're saying, right? Like you're saying like rest mass, that's just the thing. It doesn't really change. Nobody cares. What's really happening at these high speeds is that weird things are happening with your momentum. Yeah, I'm saying let's talk about what's really important. And at high speeds, it's momentum that's important. Mass is still important. It's very interesting and very important. And it tells you like what the thing is. In particle physics, we talk about rest mass all the time. Like we measure a particle, we're like, oh, what was its mass? Okay, it must be an electron. Or look, we found a new particle at 125 GeV mass. That's got to be something new. We've never seen a particle with that mass before. So mass is still very, very important, but it tells you something different. It tells you something about the character, the nature, the existence, the identity of the particle. And what we're talking about here is like motion near the speed of light. That's all about momentum. And so really, let's talk about momentum when we're talking about very high speed motion. And let's talk about mass when we're talking about, you know, what the thing is made out of. I think those are two separate concepts and it's best to disentangle them is the point. Not that nobody cares about rest mass. It's just it doesn't help us understand motion near the speed of light as much. No, yeah, I know what you mean. My spouse definitely cares if I sit on my couch all day. <laughs> but I think what you're saying, is, maybe for listeners, I think what you're saying is that if you've heard the phrase like your mass gets bigger as you go closer to the speed of light, then really what you should hear in your head or how you should correct the person saying it is that your relativistic mass gets bigger as you get closer to the speed of light. And also, comma, asterisk, nobody or modern physicists don't really talk about relativistic mass or use that as a concept. Exactly. A relativistic mass is really just another way to say energy. Like the relationship and the formulas between relativistic mass and energy, they have exactly the same value. One is just multiplied by the speed of light squared. So they change in exactly the same way. So relativistic mass is just another way to say like how much energy does something have? It's a way to try to combine the rest mass and the kinetic energy together into one like overall coherent energy. And then to say, oh, well, that's all a new kind of mass. We'll just say the energy of the particle is kind of like its mass of motion. And I'm just here to say like, okay, let's just leave mass to be mass of a rest particle. And to talk about motion, we'll leave that as kinetic energy. We don't have to invent a concept called mass of motion. We already have energy of motion. We already have this concept described in other words. Relativistic mass doesn't really add anything. If you already have momentum and you have energy. So let's leave mass to do its job and tell us about like the nature of the object when it's sitting on its couch. All right. Well, I think we've made that kind of clear. And so let's get a little bit deeper into why this term is not quite applicable or useful or helpful or even accurate and what it means about the speed limit of the universe and why it exists. But first, let's take another quick break. 
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. All right, we're talking about uh, sitting on our couches. Who doesn't enjoy that? And how that uh, when we're sitting on our couch going at zero velocity relative to other people, we have a certain amount of mass and a certain resistance to movement, which uh, Daniel, I think you're saying that's what we should call mass, not how hard you are to push when you're going really fast. Exactly. I think the question you should ask yourself is like, what are you trying to talk about when you talk about mass? And for me, I want to talk about like, what is the thing made out of? What does it have stored inside of it? And that really doesn't change when you go to high velocity. A proton moving at high speed doesn't have more stuff to it. it 
doesn't have more gluons inside of it contributing to its mass. It's the same proton. It's just moving faster. It has energy of motion, which definitely will affect how you accelerate it and how you push it and how it responds to those pushes, but it doesn't change what it is fundamentally. And to me, mass is answering that question of like, what is in this thing? Mm, now I guess the question would be, does your gravitational mass also change as you go faster or close to the speed of light? Or do you still have the same gravity? Or is that not even relevant in relativity? I think that's another reason not to use relativistic mass. If you think about relativistic mass of things getting more massive as they approach the speed of light, this like mass of motion, then you're tempted to think that things should have more gravity as they're moving faster. And then you might go down the rabbit hole and be like, well, if I take a proton and give it a lot of speed, why doesn't it turn into a black hole? Or if I throw a baseball fast enough, why doesn't it collapse into a black hole? If it's gaining more relativistic mass, shouldn't that give it also more gravitational mass and collapse, right? We talked about this once on a podcast. It's a really interesting and fascinating question because on one hand, the curvature of space-time, the thing that could actually create a black hole for you, doesn't just depend on mass. It also does depend on energy, right? General relativity tells us that space bends in response to mass and energy. And so you might think like, oh, it doesn't matter if you choose relativistic mass or inertial mass. It just depends on the mass and the energy altogether. And that's true. But general relativity is a bit more complicated than that. You don't just like add up all the mass and energy in space and say that tells you the curvature. It's a stress energy tensor. There's all these components and some add and some subtract. And it's very complicated. And the bottom line is that kinetic energy does not contribute to the curvature of space. We know this because we know that black holes exist for every observer. It's not like if I'm holding a baseball, I don't see a black hole and somebody zipping by at high speed sees it as a black hole. That's not possible. If something's a black hole, it's a black hole for everybody. And so only the rest mass can contribute to making something a black hole, which is a long way of saying relativistic mass confuses you because it makes you think that you should be adding mass to this object, which might lead it to collapse to a black hole. But that definitely doesn't happen. Mm, I see. So then we just stick to mass as to how hard it is to move me on my couch. And when we talk about going close to the speed of light, then we just just say that momentum gets harder to change as you go faster and faster. Exactly. And those calculations in general relativity of like folding in kinetic energy, those are a beast. And I don't even think people have actually been able to do those calculations. When they have to do them, they use the trick and say, oh, well, if there's a black hole in any frame, there's a black hole in every frame. So let's do this calculation in the simplest frame where the thing is at rest, where it just depends on its mass. I think nobody knows how to do that calculation. It's so complicated. But it's just another way of saying when we think about gravity also, not just like the inertial nature of the thing, but also the gravitational nature of the thing, how much it bends space time, it makes the most sense to think about the rest mass. Well, I guess I'll give you that maybe it's easier to think about if you don't call something relativistic mass. But then I guess my question would be, why does momentum get harder to change the faster you go? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help you with that question, right? That's a very fundamental question about the universe. You're just calling things differently. It's still the same question. Yeah, it's still the same question. Why does the universe conserve this quantity? Mass times velocity times gamma. The fascinating thing is that that's what it conserves. It doesn't conserve mass times velocity. Newtonian momentum is not conserved in the universe. It's only this Einsteinian momentum, mass times velocity times this gamma factor, that's the thing that's actually conserved in the universe. 
And you can see this if you take a class in special relativity and you like think about collisions at very, very high energies and you try to use like normal Galilean velocity addition formulas and you see the momentum is no longer conserved. So the universe conserves this quantity, mass times velocity times gamma. Why? Well, that actually comes out of the invariance of space, right? Space is the same everywhere in the universe. That tells you that this quantity, mass times velocity times gamma, is the thing that's conserved. Why is that? It's because of the invariance of space. Space seems to be the same everywhere, and that's why momentum is conserved. That's a deep principle in physics, Noether's theorem. Well, I, I think you're, you're creating a causality there a little bit, right? Like, you don't know that one causes the other. It's just that they just both happen to be true. Well, Noether's theorem tells us that there is a causality. It says that for every symmetry in the universe, there is a conserved quantity. And so, for example, the fact that there's no preferred direction in space leads to conservation of angular momentum. Or maybe the conservation of angular momentum is what <laughs> gives space its invariance. Philosophically, I feel like you're making a conclusion there. Yeah, I think that conclusion does come from Noether's theorem. I understand the point you're making, but this is not like an equal sign, right? It's not like A equals B, and therefore you can't infer causality. If you follow the derivation of Noether's theorem, then it definitely goes in one direction. These conservation laws definitely flow from symmetries in the equations. If you have a symmetry in the laws of physics, then it gives you these conservation laws. And it's everywhere, like even in quantum mechanics, like local gauge symmetry of quantum electrodynamics is the reason we have charge conservation in the universe. So these things are pretty deep. And what it tells us in this case is that it's mass times velocity times this gamma factor. That's the thing the universe cares about. And even if you don't like Noether's theorem and you don't believe in it or whatever, observationally, that's what we've measured. Empirically, we're like, look, this is the thing the universe seems to care about. This quantity, not mass times velocity. So in some sense, that's the fundamental thing. That's the thing that like the universe is telling us it cares about. Right. That's, that, that's what I mean. It's like, that's the thing that we know is true and whether it, it's caused by a symmetry or it, it approves the theory or whether it enables a, a symmetry. That's sort of a philosophical question a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, or theoretical. Experimentally, you're right. This is the thing we measure and we notice the universe cares about. Absolutely. I guess the, then the question is, um, what does that say about the universe? <laughs> that it cares about something? doesn't just sit on the couch all day. I think it tells us a little bit about the history of human thought. You know, we've been like grappling with how to deal with these new discoveries that we've made and how to talk about them. One of my favorite quotes from Einstein relates to this. He says, quote, the only justification for our concepts and systems of concepts is that they serve to represent the complex of our experiences. Beyond that, they have no legitimacy, by which he means like, you know, what is mass? What is momentum? What is force? They only make sense if they're talking about things we experience. We put these labels on things we see and experience in the universe and we try to give them meaning. And it was actually Einstein originally who created this concept of relativistic mass when he was playing around with these equations. And he was like, hmm, maybe it's useful to have this concept of mass that depends on your velocity. Later on, he abandoned it. He realized, no, that's kind of messy. And then later he said, it is not good to introduce the concept of relativistic mass of a moving body for which no clear definition can be given. He realized it was a bit messy. But, you know, even geniuses like Einstein can't immediately disentangle these discoveries when he makes them. It takes a few years, few decades of thinking about how this really lines up with our experience in the universe. What's the most sensible way to organize it? And in the end, it's just us talking about how humans think about these things. The math is very, very clear. There's no ambiguity about it. It's really just like, what do you mean by this word? I think the basic idea is that it is true that the faster you move, the harder it is to move faster. And so we should think about that as just momentum getting more and more expensive the closer you get to the speed of light and not use the word 
mass to think about how hard things are to move at those speeds. Yep. The universe has a higher tax for momentum billionaires. It's a progressive universe. <laughs> Bernie Sanders and AOC would be proud. Until they start their own space company. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.